This episode of Awards Chatter is brought to you by Universal Television, presenting Girls 5 Eva. Girls 5 Eva follows a one-hit wonder 90s girl group who attempts a comeback while hilariously navigating family and relationships, plus the joys and pains of middle age. The show stars Sarah Bareilles, Renee Elise Goldsbury, Paula Pell, and Busy Phillips. Don't miss the series critics call the funniest show on television. Girls 5 Eva is now streaming on Netflix and is for your Emmy consideration for Outstanding Comedy Series and all other eligible categories. Hi everyone and thank you for tuning in to the 354th episode of Awards Chatter, the Hollywood Reporter's Awards podcast. I'm the host Scott Feinberg and my guest today is one of the most talented young actresses in Hollywood. She's only 26, but she has already won two Emmys for Best Supporting Actress in a Drama Series, on top of nominations for Critics' Choice and Screen Actors Guild Awards, for her portrayal of fiery Ruth Langmore, a smart, angry, and ambitious young woman caught between the crime family into which she was born and the one with which she does business, on Netflix's hit show Ozark, which started streaming in 2017 and will end with a supersized fourth season once the pandemic is over. And she has also been winning raves for her portrayal of Quiet Jane, an assistant to an abusive Harvey Weinstein-like movie mogul, in Kitty Green's indie film The Assistant, which premiered at the 2019 Telluride Film Festival, screened again at the 2020 Sundance Film Festival, is now streaming on Hulu, and is eligible for recognition in this unusual 2020-2021 Oscar race. Julia Garner. Over the course of our conversation, the actress reflected on the personal challenges that led her to try acting in the first place, how she came to embrace the fact that she has generally been offered quirky or wacky characters as opposed to Girls Next Door and love interests, how she approached the two completely different characters of Ruth on Ozark and Jane in The Assistant, plus much more. And so without further ado, let's go to that conversation. It's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. Julia, thank you so much for joining us on the podcast. Great to see you and congratulations on what has it been like a week since the Emmy? I think exactly. Yeah. Thank you so much for that lovely introduction. But uh, yeah, yes, it has been a week, which feels weird because I'm actually in the middle of shooting right now uh, something else. So, you know, it one hand, it's one of those things that it feels like a lifetime, but it also feels like yesterday. And actually, yes. it, it feels uh, honestly, so surreal that it doesn't feel real quite, quite yet. Well, two in a row, not bad. And, uh, I guess we're, you know, certainly going to come to what you got that for. But in the meantime, we just always begin on this podcast really at truly at the beginning. Can you share with our listeners, where were you born and raised and what did your parents do for a living? I was, uh, born and raised in New York, Riverdale, New York, which is kind of like the, a suburb in the Bronx. Um, but you still got the number one train down the hill. So you got a little <laughs> bit of best of both worlds. 
And then my dad is a painter and art teacher, and my mother is uh, was used to be on the Israeli SNL like 30-something years ago and turned therapist. Wonder why I'm an actor? <laughs> now you know. <laughs> well, I thought that was so cool when I was I was prepping and I read about the fact that so she, is she Israeli? Yeah, yeah. I okay. mean, and the fact that I grew up in New York, it's like, of course, like what else was I gonna do? And then my sister's <laughs> also she's also a teacher, but she's also hilarious and she's a very good writer and and um, I'm definitely from out of my family. I'm definitely the more boring. One, <laughs> for sure. You can ask anyone that works with me that meets them. They're like, oh, my God. <laughs> well, I, I I guess it's true. I think that you guys kind of one of the ways you all bonded was similar to my family, old movies, right? Um, can you share? I guess that was even more than current movies, a, a part of your growing up. Yeah, I'm getting a New York vibe from. Are you? Where are you from originally? I'm from Connecticut. I'm from Connecticut. It's pretty close. But I mean, are you, it's the same thing. It's like New Yankees York. fan. Yes, yes, I am. Good, good, good. Where in Connecticut? Right, we can... I went to school in Connecticut. Wait. Yeah, I. So I, I'm from New Haven, uh, suburb called Woodbridge. Where were you in Connecticut? I was like, I went to school uh, in Greenwich. Yeah. Connecticut. Yeah. yeah. So awesome. I mean, yeah, small world. So small. <laughs> Yeah, and I had a lot of friends in New Haven. It, what was <laughs> what was the question again? I apologize. No, yeah, it's all, it's all good. Now. I'm like talking about myself only, so I'm just being honest. No, thank you. It's all good. It's uh, well, it was just about how old movies were. I guess TCM. You were you probably are one of the first, you know, and me, uh, you know, to grow up with TCM. It was a resource that most prior, you know, prior generations didn't have. I know. I, you know, I love Turn. I grew up watching Turner classic movies. My parents love film. I mean, they're obviously they're artists and, um, you know, not only artists, but just teachers and they're, and they love explaining things as well. <laughs> so, uh, yeah. And, you know, I definitely watched films that were qu questionable to showing like a 10 year old, like, you know, Rose, like all about Eve and whatever happened, baby Jane, which is kind of scary for like a a kid, but I'm super happy that I watched it. And, you know, I was familiar with Betty Davis and Clark Gable and, you know, all those old time Hollywood stars, but then also just like seventies cinema too. But when I was a kid, like they, they weren't showing, which is so weird to me. They were not showing seventies cinema on Turner classic movies. Like now you go open it and they're showing like pretty and pink, which to me is like, <laughs> You know, and I wasn't even born at the time, but that's more of like a newer movie than like His Girl Friday or something, you know? Exactly, exactly. Um, well, and then I guess you were into this, this, you know, older movies, but that's not why you pursued. It wasn't like, all right, I want to be Betty Davis. The reason you first... Well, no one can be Betty Davis, first of all. that Yeah. <laughs> there will only be one Betty Davis. <laughs> that is definitely true. But uh, I mean, I... I guess the thing, though, you know, you've talked about in other interviews, it was really more about being a shy kid, needing to come out of your shell. But I think one of the things I'd like to get into more, if we can, is just, you know, why, what made you so shy? What was the reason that you were drawn to acting to try to overcome that? Well, you know, there's a whole uh, reason behind it, which is I think that was also the, one of the reasons why I loved film and television was that was really the way that I learned 
a lot of things. Um, because I'm a visual person, I, I had, uh, reading problems. Um, I struggled from terrible dyslexia and auditory processing. And I just, I had to experience it rather than, you know, tell me how to play a game. I had to like experience the game and then kind of play it, which makes sense why I love acting experiences and hands-on learning. Um, so there was that. And I just felt, you know, even when I finally learned how to read, there was a part of me that felt dumb and insignificant and, uh, just, you know, not reading, you know, learning how to read at the age of 10 does something to your confidence, you know, and that's still something that I struggle with. You know, I still feel <laughs> at a lot of times insignificant or dumb, you know, because, you know, I, I feel like things that happen to you as a child, traumatic, don't go. It shapes who you are, you know, and it shapes who you are as a person and how you view yourself, good, bad, it just shapes you. But that's also, that being said, that's how I also approach characters too and and the people that I play because, you know, I try to find, the first thing that I try to figure out internally when I'm doing the self-work is who were they when, when they were kids? Like what is something that triggers them, that brings out their insecurities and their neuroses and what is that thing that defines them to their core in a way? And that always happens when you're a child, you know, there is a certain age that you're like stuck in, you know, because that, that certain event happened in your life where you lost your innocence in a way Mm -hmm. and you kind of view the world differently. So that's what I, I always try to find that, like, who is, what is that inner child with the character, you know? So it it actually affected my acting in, in a very deep way that I, I learned later. Yeah. The, it's the good, the bad. It's, it's, it's everything. Yeah. Now whose idea was it to try to, you know, use acting to overcome this and specifically to go, I think it's T Schreiber studio. That was the place where, how do you end up there? What was the, what was the route? Well, you know, I, it started, I needed to do uh, some activity, on a Saturday afternoon class, you know, because you obviously you should always keep teenagers busy, no matter what <laughs> it is, you know, no matter how great the kid is, you don't know, they might hang out with the bat, you need to keep them busy. But I think, you know, my sister took act, and I actually think even if you don't end up acting, I think taking an acting class is very beneficial for people in a way with taking you out of your comfort zone. So mm-hmm. I did that to overcome my shyness. And I just ended up I just, because I was so uncomfortable with the words that I was saying, because I felt like I couldn't articulate myself, that I had an easier, and I still very much so have an easier time saying other people's words in in a way. So that that's probably, and I just like the feeling of forgetting who I was mm-hmm. temporarily, and then them calling, okay, done, cut, you know. Um, but my first acting teacher was... Uh, he recently passed away. He's amazing. Was Peter Minor, and um, and then I did a summer program at the American Academy of Dramatic Arts uh, when I was like fourteen with a wonderful. She's still my acting coach, uh, Pamela Scott, and I still again because I did not go to a conservatory for four years, so I had to 
and I didn't act since I was two years old. So I got it. I had to catch up quick, <laughs> you know? Well, I, I, I thought it was really interesting that I, even after you got Ozark and, you know, people would, uh, they're, you know, you're winning awards and all this stuff that you still really have this close working relationship with, with Pam. What is it specifically that she can even do for you at this point of life? That, you know, what is it more like a, just a matter of kind of comfort having knowing that you can pick her brain or is there something specific that you guys do? Oh, no, I, I don't think you can get too comfortable ever being an actor. <laughs> That's what it is. You know, I think yeah. that you always as soon as you do feel that comfort in a way. I mean, no, I mean, for sure, I'm definitely more confident than I was and I'm learning more, but. You don't want to get to it too much in your head because then you have no room to even grow even more, you know? I think it's more that I don't want to, on the day, like if I'm starting to work on the day on set, I don't want to have to learn new things about my character when I'm on set. I already, I think the, the key to the difference between good acting and great acting is that you know that person that you're going to play and that you're going to be for however long, that you know it inside and out, that it's not just knowing the lines and hitting your mark, that you really, really got to know this person. And I think that's so beautiful, like like actually knowing, meeting someone new, you know? Was it through that kind of relationship with an acting coach that you came up with what I believe is really a big part of what you do for prep in terms of journaling as this, as a character, or is that, uh, was that something you just hit upon independently? No, I mean, for sure. I learned, I, you know, you have to learn like, you know, a new actress isn't going to know, especially like a 16 year old actress isn't going to be like, I need to know this part in my bones. Like you're still a 16 year old, you know, you need somebody to say like, Hey, listen, like if you want to act, with the best actors, like you need to, you need to know the character inside and out in your bones, you know? So yeah, for sure. It definitely helped me to journal and to do the internal work. Um, Pam helped me with that, but I just, yeah, I, I want to make sure that I'm always prepared for anything, you know, and acting is not, I mean, you still have the best actors. I think like, it doesn't, I think Al Pacino still worked with his acting coach and, Laura Dern still worked with her acting coach. And mm -hmm. That's what I read. I don't want to have false yeah. information, but, <laughs> but you know, it, it doesn't, and they're, they're like the best. I mean, they, they, it doesn't stop, you know, yeah. you don't, you can't, no, it's... you can't stop learning. So what made you say, I guess about a year into being, I think at Triber studio that, you know what, I'm not only enjoying this, but I think maybe I should start auditioning for professional gigs? Were you just, were you getting particularly good feedback about your work or was it just, let's see what can happen? What was the thought process? Well, I don't want to be like, I always, but I always, <laughs> I don't want to like be like, wow, um, I'm this, I'm this, but I always, I was very uh, lucky. I've always gotten good feedback. So, mm -hmm. um, but that's not enough, you know, uh, but I started doing a lot of short films for Columbia film school and that was kind of like, I kind of not saw what a set was like, but kind of got experience from that and learned from that a little bit. And then, you know, I got, I think this was the thing that I was lucky. I was, um, 
there was an open casting call for this TV show called Skins that uh, mm-hmm. this uh, student filmmaker's girlfriend was interning at a casting office, uh, Susan Shopmaker. And I got a Facebook message like the night before, when I still had a Facebook, that like <laughs> there was a night before, like, oh, there's an open casting call for this English show that's going to be brought in America. Like, just come by. And there was 1,500 kids just in New York. They were also looking in Canada and and L.A. And it ended up being me. It was a crazy audition process, open casting call, which they don't have those anymore. And it ended up being me and another girl. I thought after that, I thought every audition was going to be like that, which (laughs) it's not like an open casting call at all. And I was so devastated when I didn't get it because that was my first professional audition. And that casting director, Susan, shopmaker, called my mother and she said, I'm going to find this girl a manager. She's going to work. Don't worry. And she did find me a manager. And that manager ended up leaving the business. But I was also lucky that he suggested another manager. And I'm actually still with my manager today. Um, so, And then a few months later, she cast Martha Marcy May Marlene. So that was my first movie. I very much remember seeing that on the festival circuit. And I think just for listeners who haven't yet caught up with it, it's basically sort of a group of young women who are being indoctrinated, I guess, into a cult might be a way of putting it. I, I don't know. Had Sean Durkin, the director, and I think the writer, he'd never made a no, feature. That was his first. He was like, I yeah. think, I mean, everybody was such a baby on that set. Like he, yeah. <laughs> everybody was like, I think they like, just finished film school or like barely finished like it was one of those things and it was like summer camp and I just I was 16 so the thing that I learned on that set was how to be on a set you know I didn't I didn't even know what a script supervisor was like I was you know and this was like 2010 so when I went to Sundance like Sundance was very cool amongst like film people but it still wasn't super like commercial commercial it was yeah. yeah so I kind of was just going with the flow <laughs> you know? like I just was like oh yeah the, you know this is the festival that you know Robert Redford started I guess I, you know <laughs> so yeah and the movie you know really was a, a critic starling and got a lot of good feedback and I guess I would imagine that for you that really sort of uh, led to a maybe greater number of auditions or opportunities or whatever. And I, I wanted to pause there to ask you about something that you've said in, in other interviews where you talk about the fact that from very early on, maybe from that point, you realized that there were certain kinds of parts that people were inclined to think of you for and certain kinds that they weren't. And I wonder just how do you figure out what people are gravitating to you for or aren't? And how does that is that a weird thing to even know or, you know, just processing that? I think the thing was, was that I didn't move to L.A. right away. Ah, Because okay. as much as I love L.A., but I think a lot of times before Ozark, a lot of people in L.A. didn't quite. They were like, she's great, but but there was a, always a but. <laughs> and it was like. She's great, but maybe she, like, needs to straighten her hair and, like, get veneers, you know? <laughs> like, like, there was, uh, you know, um, they just couldn't accept the fact that, like, I guess I had a gap tooth and, like, really curly, weird, blonde hair. I, I, they just didn't quite get it, which is fine. It worked out for me in my bed, but it was a 
curse and a blessing at the same time. But I kind of knew, I was like, you know, I need to get something that will be kind of weird and not quirky, but just kind of bizarre and like not like girl next door. But then also gets from that because it's universal and everyone likes it, that it gets kind of a commercial aspect of it too in the end. And that ended up being Ozark, you know, no, we all had, we didn't know where the show was going, you know, obviously Jason was, this was kind of his passion, all that thing. And that, that's kind of what it was. And now all of a sudden people are like, oh my God, Julie, I'm like, you didn't like me, like not like me, but you didn't cast me. Like, you know, like I, I can't like the, the re, you know, when people are like, how come you never did these kind of parts and those typical, those like girl next door parts? I'm like, cause no one ever cast me. Like for them, like I probably auditioned to play someone's kid, but they didn't cast, me, <laughs> you know, so. Well, let's talk about some of these parts that were between Martha Marcy and Ozark, because as you say, they w- tended to be maybe uh, eccentric or Raw. outsider or whatever. Yeah. <laughs> it's okay. You don't so, have to sugarcoat so, it. <laughs> well, let's start with uh, a religious Mormon who believes she's impregnated by a song in Electric Children. This was your, I guess, most sizable part up to that point. Which is funny because um, when we were shooting that, I was in Utah and I was like, I'm pretty sure I'm the only Jew in Utah. Right <laughs> <laughs> so it's fine. But yeah, from New York. <laughs> yeah. Well, I, I, I guess, and that one almost didn't happen. It was sort of a last minute thing, right? Yeah, it was technically, I mean, talk about amazing student film. Uh, it was, you know, the, 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 our d- director, Rebecca Thomas was who, you know, I love and, she was just graduated. I believe it was like her her thesis in a way, which wow. talk about like an amazing thesis. But yeah, that was you know I a, another thing that I was super happy about after Martha. You know, I always I auditioned for leads and big things and all those things, but I subconsciously didn't really want to book them because I knew that I wouldn't be ready to like carry a movie and. There was a point where I was in a few things and I remember thinking like, I'm ready to do a lead uh, and I want to do that, but it has to be the right thing. And I think that was definitely the right thing. You know, it wasn't this big Hollywood budget type, like you have to be ready for that, you know, because it's a carrying movies like it's a very big responsibility. It's you just have to also know how to break down a script, too properly. Do you remember any of the bigger movies that you went out for, but didn't end up getting at that time? Oh my God. There were so, I can't tell you how many <laughs> auditions I went. I was talking about my sister. I was like, remember I used to go on like three auditions <laughs> a week. Um, oh God. Yeah. Yeah. But uh, yeah, I just, I feel like it all worked out, you know? I, I, you know, I'm, I'm so happy with how my career has been going, you know, I yeah. wouldn't change it, you know, totally. I'd rather do it slowly and steady than just rush. So, but yeah, but, but Electric Children was, I learned so much from, from that film, you know, and I learned, I learned so much from all the films that I do. Well, so that was Martha Marcy's 2011, Electric Children's 2012. Also 2012 are two others that I just want to mention. I know they were smaller parts, but it's, you know, I guess 
Parks well, being wallflower. <laughs> oh, yeah, exactly. And and uh, and Parks probably on a I would guess budget wise was probably bigger than anything to that point. Yeah, I was. Maybe? I mean, yes, I was a featured extra on that. Um, yes. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, I mean, for sure, and uh, it was very exciting to be on like a super big, big set, you know. But that being said, like I started my start on on it, doing uh indie films you know and and that's honestly why I wanted to also if we're talking about the assistant as well like that's why I wanted to do I remember between Ozark and I was doing Dirty John and Ozark as much as I they're all great tv shows I remember telling my agent like I want to do something where I'm going back to my roots which mm-hmm. is a smaller independent film you know, um, with a powerful story. So, yeah. yeah. And I was lucky. I got the assistant. Definitely. Definitely. Which I'm going to, I'm going to focus on more than, more than some of these, but I do want to mention, I read that David Chase specifically wrote the scene in not fade away that you appear in. How did, how does that come about? Oh man. Well, uh, that, I will tell you some other crazy extra stories about that. So <laughs> I auditioned for, uh, the daughter in that and I didn't get it again. I always audition. <laughs> I'm like, eh, she doesn't look, she's a weird looking. So they auditioned. So they, they, he wrote me as some like weird ghost dreams. Of course he wrote a weird ghost dream sequence. <laughs> you know, that's the part that I'm going to get. So, <laughs> so I got that and that was actually my first trip to LA. Oh God. I can't believe I haven't, this is the first time I'm telling the story like publicly. And on the plane, I was like so excited. It's the first time I like flew like first class or whatever. And it was just like so exciting for me. And, you know, I was with my mom and actually my acting coach came cause I was so nervous. And that week they shoved so many meetings. They shoved like three or four meetings a day. And at the time I didn't know how to say no. So I was just kind of stretching myself super thin. And, um, and on the plane, I got off the plane and I got this horrible eye infection, like, like green. And it, and it wasn't contagious because I had a doctor come and I was having, I'm telling you when I had some, I'm like, how, where are these meetings? Like I, I had like a chemistry reading with Claire Danes, like the next day. And then I had like all these meetings. I had a meeting with, um, was it Fred Fred Roos from uh, the God the guy who like produced yeah, like, yeah. that guy? I'm sure he doesn't even remember me, but like, <laughs> but like I had green pus coming out of my eye, and oh my god! And then I just like I, I had to apologize to everyone like beforehand that it's not contained. I should have just worn an eye patch at that point because. <laughs> And I was honestly, since then, I was like, LA is not the place for me. I have the worst <laughs> luck. I got an eye infection. Luckily, they put heavy, like, cl- like almost clown makeup in the David Chase thing, so you didn't get distracted from the eye. Um, <laughs> so, yeah. That was now we have first. to go look and try and see it. Yeah, that was my <laughs> first trip to LA. Oh, my God. Um, yeah, that would, that's not, that would be like, tough. That's not a part of the question, but I just had to put that out there. No, I think that's... That's, uh, as you say, you're like your first time you got to, and you're probably worrying about making impressions and all that. And Oh yeah. And I, can't can't be. I forgot this. And then I had a, a chemistry re I with, um, with such a big read and I had to apologize for my, I was, uh, like for there at the time I didn't know it was for the masters, for the Paul Thomas Anderson thing. Oh. And, you know, and I didn't work. I mean, I, 
and and <laughs> I was sitting like I had to apologize for my eye to like everyone and I'm like <laughs> oh my god and I love Paul Donis Anderson he's like my yeah. favorite you know it's just kind of <sighs> but you know whatever it yeah. worked out. He's, maybe he'll remember me as, yeah, that I girl. <laughs> so, yeah. Well, okay. So that brings us to 2013. Uh, one of two cannibal sisters in We Are What We Are, a remake of a Mexican horror film. Um, I would think that's another uh, not girl next door part. I guess let's pause there for a second. Anything took away from that? Uh, first of all, I love that director, Jim Mickle. He is one of the best directors I've ever worked. He's just also the best guy, you know, and he's such a great director. I love all the directions that he... He's just... I, I can't, you know, I can't speak more any highly of him because he's just so amazing. But, yeah, I, I would suggest every actor should do a horror film at least once in their life because it is the hardest thing to shoot. Because you have to pretend extreme scenarios that would never happen. You have to, like, believe that and act. But it's really hard. And you have to scream all the time and you have to cry. So it's, like, really intense. But that shoot was so much fun and that whole production was so great. And um, so that's what I learned was I was so happy to do uh, a horror film because I learned a lot. Interesting. Well, I think the first time you did a film that would have required kind of working totally with your imagination, really, in a sense, with just green screens, that would be Sin City, A Dame to Kill For, that's 2014. Do you like that, where it's um, it, it's essentially just in your head what you're doing, what you're acting opposite, or is that challenging? I mean, honestly, it feels like an audition. <laughs> It feels like you're in a casting office, you know, If and that's even harder because you don't even have the part, right? you know, so it's like, well, I'm doing all this work and, uh, you know, I might not even get it. So, but this, but this, it's like, okay, well, I'm at least, you know, and there's, and at least there's props. At least you have a, I mean, with auditioning, you don't have anything. You're, you have to use mm-hmm. your script as a prop, I guess. You got to just use what you, you know, and if you do come in with props, you look like some weird like artsy fartsy actor or something when people are like, Oh my God, this guy or this girl, like, but yeah, that's what I, I just learned, you know, I learned that you have to just kind of depend on it. The work speaks for itself. You know, you don't want to depend on anything. Like you don't want to be one of those actors that are like, yeah, the scene's going to be great. You know, we're going to add some great music because the music, you don't know, you know, once the movie's done, it's out of your control. Right. I think the first time I was really consciously aware of like, okay, so who is this actress? I need to look her up and find out. And obviously I'd seen Martha Marcy and other stuff, but it, the, the first time you part, really yeah. registered. Yeah. This would be grandma, which was another Sundance movie. You're playing a pregnant teen who asked her grandma for help in obtaining an abortion. Your grandma is played by Lily Tomlin. And I would imagine as you've talked about, you know, being somebody who was familiar with, movies from before your time that she might have been somebody who was already on your radar. And I just wonder how that works when it's really, it's the two of you and she's a legendary person. Is that intimidating or how do you come? Super iconic. No, I mean, again, I was super young. So I think one hand, yes, I, I knew all like the movies and the famous movies that she was in, but 
you're kind of like when you're like a teenager or like even like 19, 20 years old, you're kind of just like go, go, go. And you don't really process things. <laughs> so like one hand, yes, but the other hand, no. But the thing that I when I'm like that, I saw look at her stamina is like next level. Um, and that is a big part of this business and any business really um, is stamina. And just, yeah, how, yeah, she, her stamina is incredible. And, and she's just so fun. Like, she makes really a light set. And that's one thing that I've learned over the years, that you don't know where the project's going to go. It might go somewhere. It might not go somewhere. But at least make the set fun and nice and light because the project might go might not go anywhere, you know? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So I think it would have been roughly around that time that you started what ended up being a recurring role from seasons three through six on one of the TV shows that's, you know, considered one of the greatest ever, not just of recent years. And that is the Americans. You were playing the CIA agent's daughter who gets romantically involved with this KGB spy. And by the time you joined that show, I think it was already in really held in really high regard. I've talked to other actors who say that in, in some ways it's it's really particularly intimidating to join a show when it's already up and running and everybody knows each other and they have particularly a claim at like like this one did at that point. How did you how did you adapt to joining a series for I think the first time? I'm going to yeah, for sure it's intimidating, but I think I'm going to go back on what I was saying earlier about you're instantly in ease when you know that person and you know that character inside and out, all of that fear goes out the window and you're just focusing on that person and what you want to translate on screen, you know? So I think that is just a good insight for any actor is just focus on your work and focus on getting to really know the person that you're going to play. So then you just can become that person. But what I learned on that was, you know, was how TV works. TV is very different how it's shot than film. It's much more difficult. Everything's moving much more fast. Everything's more last minute. I mean, it's, and that wasn't even such a last minute show compared to like a lot of other shows, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think also that that was probably like my second TV audition like ever or third or something like it was very early on. I was very reluctant to do TV for like a long time. How come? Well, because for a long time, things were like movies, you know? Mm -hmm. And, you know, I feel like TV, you know, you had the, you had Oz being like the first of its kind. And then after that, you had the Sopranos and then you had Mm -hmm. the wire and breaking Mm -hmm. bad and Dexter and, those were like, I don't want to say it, but those were like the big, big ones, you know? Mm -hmm. And then I don't know what year it changed, but there was something that shifted and now it's kind of the golden age of television. Mm -hmm. And I kind of was seeing that for whatever reason, I don't know how, but I kind of saw that I was like, something's happening with movie scripts and they're not what they were even two years ago. Mm -hmm. And then I was like, you know, I'm kind of interested, like what are TV scripts like right now? And I, there was a part of me that I was like, I think I need a, and I, I, I wanted, you know, obviously more, but I felt like I 
I was like, I need, I don't have a name really. And I feel like you get the name from television, but I want it to be a good television show. I don't want to just get a name for something right. bad, you know? Right. But yeah, again, like that's not a bad thing to think because you need a, actors need an audience, you know? So when mm-hmm. I'm saying name, like you, that's, I have to, I can't just write or paint by myself. Like acting requires an audience. So. Well, and, and I guess it would have maybe overlapped that during those you know, that period of 2015 to 2018, when you were popping up in 10 different episodes of the Americans, it must've been at that's in that, within that period that you first heard about Ozark, right? Yeah. So I was doing the Americans and then, uh, in between that hiatus, <laughs> I was, wasn't getting, I was trying to find the right job and I wasn't getting like a job, right? To be honest, again, it's a very unsteady career. And I just was like, I'm going to get something great. I'm going to get something great. But then I was like, am I? <laughs> then I started being like, oh, God, no. But, but I was like, I'm going to get something great. I know I will. And then Ozark came in. And that whole thing was so fast because I, I, Ruth wasn't in the pilot. You know, she only popped up in episode two for a second. But I didn't know that at the time. Mm-hmm. And they didn't, they gave us the pilot. And then they gave me a mock scene and I did a movie a year before with a Missouri accent, and I saw that it said Missouri, and I was like, oh, there's an accent. I immediately assumed that there was an accent. Mm-hmm. And I also was like, oh, well, she's probably, you know, ha- more likely to have an accent because she's, you know, uneducated and, you know, all those. She's probably, mm-hmm. you know, didn't go to school as much and, you know, all those things. And and mm-hmm. um, and then when I prepared for it, I only prepared for it with an accent. And then when I got to the audition, you know, New York casting offices are so small and they're like the walls are paper thin and you can hear who's going to do the scene and your scene. And then you could sometimes hear like, that was great. That was the best. And then you're going like right away in and you're like, oh, my God. And then so everybody was having just a normal accent. And I was like, oh, my God, I'm going to be like that crazy actor that's like, you better hire me. I'm really going in for this part. You know, like, I'm, I'm messing on this. And they're like, this person's not Like, so I was like, and I was like, oh my God, I don't want to be that crazy actor. Um, I was like, let me try doing it the regular accent. I couldn't remember a single line in the regular accent. And I went in and I was like, just, I'll do it with the accent that I prepared. And I did it once. I called my mom. I was like, I'm not getting this part. Forget about it. And I was devastated because I really knew that this was a great part and I was going to have a hard, I never get like this. I was going to have a hard time seeing someone else do that part because I'm very good at Let moving me on. Just interrupt for one sec. Cause so you say you knew it was a great part in a, in a good show, but what do you remember what scene you performed that made you feel that the character was going to be good? It was a mock scene and the mock scene was something that Wyatt was, uh, ruined someone's car and it was going to jeopardize, like it was going to affect him and his college application and all just typical sounds like Ruth (laughs) thing, like why, you know, but I really loved how, I just loved how deep it was. Like there was something so sad about her wanting a better life. She knew that maybe she couldn't do it, but she knew the potential for another one of her family members and she wanted a better life for them in a way. And there was something 
so um, hopeful, weirdly hopeful about her that like I was like this. This is a girl who gets up in the morning every morning with a purpose, you know, and I saw that right away. And she's just so curious. And I that is such an important quality to me in just with people is uh, curiosity, because you can even have someone who's well educated and they're not curious and there's only so deep that they can go. But if they are, they go very deep. Mm-hmm. So you you leave the audition, you call home, this this bombed, and then what? And then I got called back next week. <laughs> <laughs> and I guess the accent thing worked because that's a... And it worked out because, you know, you, you could tell the difference between the two families, the Langmores and the Birds, you know? Kind of everything... I'm a very big believer that everything happens for a reason, you know? And at some point, somebody... I don't remember if it was the showrunner or who it was, but I, I gather that somebody was like, after you left the room, I don't know if it was the callback or the original, they're like, oh, we're going to have to make this character a bigger part of the show. You Have you you've heard that as well? Um, <laughs> I mean, I don't want to be like, yes, but um, <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> I, yeah, you know, I, I guess that's what I, yes. <laughs> no, that's great. It's um, great. I feel very, you know, but again, everything happens for a, a reason and I just really love Ruth you know her good bad <laughs> qualities everything so had you ever really spent a significant amount of time away from home your family all of that when now you're being asked suddenly to go I guess for a big chunk of the year to Atlanta where your surrogate family now is going to be Jason Bateman Laura Linney and all the Langmores. Um, That's you know, a really what, what, funny what sentence. Was... <laughs> my surrogate father is Jason Bateman. My surrogate mother is uh, adopted mother is Laura Linney, adopted father. Yeah, all that stuff. That's really funny. Yeah. <laughs> um, yes, and luckily they're the most wonderful people ever. You know, I talk about amazing, I, I don't want to use this word, but leader, like, yeah, leaders. I mean, they mm-hmm. know how to lead a set because they don't behave like I'm the leader. They just are. They're so good to the crew. They're so good to all the cast. They, they really care, you know? And, um, God, I, I learned so much from that set, you know, and so much from Jason and so much from Laura. I mean, she's just such a natural teacher. So I feel very, very, very lucky that, I got to do this job with them and work with them. And I mean, you know, they're, they're both amazing and uh, yeah. beautiful people. Well, one thing that just occurred to me, I didn't even have this written down, but I was thinking, um, you know, the only times I've really interviewed Laura, I think were to do with covering Broadway where she's done a lot of great work. And I wondered if, you know, just speaking with her or observing her career, has that ever kind of planted the seed in your mind that you would like to do some stage work on that level? Is that something that would appeal to you if an offer came? There, It would. I mean, I don't know if I would ever want to do what she did like a few months ago, the one woman show. I don't know how she did that. And she, I, I've never seen anything like it. It was so incredible. But, you know, Laura, Laura has definitely given me some of the best advice I've ever received in my career. I mean, she's so generous. 
and she's just so smart. And Jason is also so generous and so smart and giving me great advice. I mean, they both, I really feel like I have a back with them, you know? It's very nice to feel. It feels nice to feel that you have beyond support, but that back. So for the record, Julia Garner says that Laura Linney is not a bitch wolf. <laughs> Anything but. I felt like I had to apologize to her every five minutes in between takes because, like, she's so poised and proper, Laura. So I'm like, I can't believe I'm calling Laura Linney a bitch wolf. <laughs> like... Did you have a, I mean, you have some great insults on that show. Is there one that is a personal favorite? Oh, man. I mean, the bitch wolf is great. And then, of course, I feel like a very amazing, uh, I can't like line is, is shut your fuck nugget mouth and get the hell out. <laughs> I mean, that just that like, oh, and also the Snow White, Snow White, like season one, there was a couple great ones, like. And I don't see any dwarves running around here, like Snow White. Like that, that. I mean, I'm just like, where do you? Or I don't know shit about fuck. Like, <laughs> <laughs> now are any of these improvised, or they're all scripted? No, they're all. I no. Chris Mundy's a genius. I'm not that smart <laughs> to just come up with that. But I will say, like, you know, if I want to make a scene more intense, going into the scene and having Ruth at the get go be really angry, just always add what the fuck or the fuck. The fuck is all, I don't know if I can curse, but I don't like cursing. Please. Yes, but You're this, again, to. this is Ruth. This is not me. <laughs> this is right. Well, and I also, I, I will throw in Skinny Bitch is a good one as well. That's a. Uh, oh, that actually was in, like Jason added that because there needed to be a line in between, uh, you know, with, that's the wheel. So terrible. The, the kicking off the boat with the wheelchair, right? That one. <laughs> Yeah. Well, I think, though, that what's what's interesting for people who have never heard you as you and are listening to this, they only let's say they only know you as Ruth. You know, the contrast is obviously very stark. And I think that in terms of you mentally just getting into the part each time you play it, you know, we've talked about some of the longer term things that you can do with working with your acting coach, journaling, all of that. But I read that for Ruth, maybe specifically, I don't know if this also applies to other characters, there's a certain kind of music that helps you to get into the mindset. Maybe is it before each time you play her in a scene? Yeah, I definitely think, well, the thing that's a, a few of the similarities to Ruth and I are definitely, we both love 90s hip hop. Uh, mm. I grew up with that. So, you know, my dad loves 90s hip hop and and my whole family really does. Um so there's that, but that wasn't, when I got it, I was like, oh, this is not hard. I'll be able, I have all of these songs on my Spotify and iTunes anyway. So, you know, mm -hmm. but, um, so there's that, but, you know, I think a lot of it also has to do, again, you're, cre you're becoming, I don't want to say creating, but becoming a person, uh, is, it comes even down to the walk. It comes down to how you carry your body, what is uh, the the fidgeting stuff that people have little ticks that they do that they don't even notice that they're doing. And um, even the walk for Ruth is so important. And that was all a, like an accident in a way because mm. I had a fitting the, the first year and um, the week before we were shooting and I was putting on these boots and they're like, these boots are great, but the boots were so heavy and I was like kind of mocking, like, what if I walked like this? And I was like, oh, wait, what if I walk? I actually like how this is walking. And there's something about her that's very 
tomboyish, but almost like she's not a girl's girl. She only knows how to be around men because she didn't grow up with women. And I think she's like secretly kind of upset about that. Like she wishes that she can be a girl's girl, but she's just not. So she walks like a little boy in a way, like, you know, with <laughs> shoulders and everything. And, mm-hmm. and there's a, there's a determination, you know? Absolutely. Well, so what do you make of the evolution of that character over, we're speaking after three seasons, just, um, you know, season one, as you've said in other things, you know, she was basically a child. Season two, becoming more of a woman, also kind of vulnerable. Is she a bird? Is she a Langmore? Season three, maybe a little bit more vulnerability we see of her. What have you made of the evolution? And has there been one of those seasons where you've felt most challenged or enjoyed it the most or just just curious as you look back at the whole arc of it all? I think season one was hard in the sense where I was, I've never played a part like that. I completely, I don't have anything similar to Ruth, really. And I just, I was learning how to be on a TV show because, again, things move very differently and faster. And it was very tired because, you know, I had an accent and I was dealing with all these things and, you know, I had to play up my toughness because I don't feel like I'm, like, the toughest person. So I had to... (laughs) kind of uh, play that up and try to convince people, (laughs) you know, (laughs) it's like my job is convincing people that, you know, Um, and then season two was more that, okay, this is the trick. This is the hardest part with that. The key with TV is you want to make up the person consistent, but you don't want to make things repetitive. And there's a big Mm -hmm. difference between that, you know, and it's not a movie. You got to come back and, but how can I make this character and person grow and evolve rather than repeating the same thing? So there's that. And then season three's challenge was because I had a love interest, I didn't just want Ruth to change just because she has, like, a boyfriend, you know? Uh, so I had to plan out, like, when I was going to have a wall with Ben and have this wall and then... When was I going, what scene and moment was going to be the moment that I was going to take the wall down and have him actually see me for who I am? Um, And uh, also just, she didn't have a back this season. You know, she lost Wyatt and she lost her whole family and she's trying to convince herself, you know, she did the right thing. Well, I'm wondering, I guess, you know, between after your work on season one, that I don't know if you were already on to the work on season two when when season one dropped, but when that moment happened and you're on a show on Netflix, which is going out to basically every country except North Korea, pretty much. And, you know, Emmys really was more second and third season, but just, you know, the show, obviously you're on a major, major show in a big part. When did you feel the impact on your own day to day life? Like, all right, I'm going to go to the store or whatever. I felt it very, very late, to be honest, because I don't read anything about myself ever. Like, I had to read and see, like, I've read maybe only a handful of reviews in my life, but, like, not not a lot. Like, I've maybe read a total of, like, and this is my whole career, okay? Like, mm-hmm. maybe, like, six, seven reviews. Wow. And why, why is that? 
Like, this is my whole career, not just Ozark. Mm-hmm. Um, because good or bad, it's going to affect you because it's going to get in your head. And I don't mean, like, you know, becoming conceited or whatever, but, I mean, it could be that, too. But but <laughs> more, uh, oh, well, I was so, everyone seemed to like me last year or liked my last performance. Uh, I hope that I have to keep it keep it up. You know, and uh, it's just good or bad or even if it's like, oh, they really hated it. And then you just get self-conscious. And that's not what acting is about. You're just being present in the moment. And, um, you know, so I try not I really like unless if somebody if I have six different people sending me the same review that they're like, you have to read this. I'm like, <laughs> OK, so that's normally the the, the case. Um you know, so I, I try, I think that's the downfall. But you can't help if uh, somebody sees you at, you know, a gas station or something and says that, you know, where suddenly, I guess just in terms of that side of it, where, you know, I, I remember, I don't know if it was Woody Allen or somebody was saying that a big part of what, I don't, I don't think it was Woody Allen. Somebody was saying, even if you know, it was, it, <laughs> yeah. Yeah, even any like famous person. <laughs> yeah. That, well, that they were saying that, a big part of what makes you good as an actor in this, in their case, I can't, I guess they can't speak for everybody is being able to observe people behaving normally and processing that and then channeling that into your work. But if people are no longer behaving normally around you, does that make your job as an actor harder? Yes. Yes. And no, but that's, this sounds terrible, but that's not my problem. That's their problem. Yeah. No, but what I'm saying is for you, is it harder though? Because when the other thing that you were talking about being frozen at whatever age, like people, I think earlier on, maybe when we were talking about whatever happens to you as a child, that's going to shape who you are as an adult. Another thing I've often heard is like, in some ways you're frozen in, in certain ways at the age when you become a famous person, because life is not going to be the same after that. For sure. Yeah. yeah but, I, you know, I think, you know, I, I've had a lot of like, I feel like everybody has life lessons in a way. And mm-hmm. I think one of my life lessons is um, things can change in a flip of a dime in a way. And it's the same with this business, you know, but if you can control your consistency on what you can do as a person or your work that you deliver, that's not going to, if you can be consistent, that's not going to change, you know, but, but other people might not be. So that's what I mean. It's like, not that it's like, Oh, it's your problem. Not mine. I just mean that like you have to be consistent if someone else isn't being consistent in a way, right? you know? So yeah, but I will say this, like I haven't been feeling it as much like, you know, because I, I, yeah, it, it has changed. I mean, I will say this, as awful as 2020 is, the mask thing, if I wear sunglasses and a hat and a mask, like, it's so great. (laughs) Like, and here's the thing. It's like, you know, I mean, it's also, it's doing, killing two birds in one stone. You're, you're getting protected and, and I'm not getting bombarded in a way. That's right. That's right. Um, Well, and it's not like you've had a lot of time between seasons to just like, hang out and party let's just note first of all i never um, did that anyway like i i'm like the most boring person like yeah i never no i'm not i don't leave my house and and that was my life hasn't changed 
before, after, oh, whatever. Like I've been, I haven't, I don't leave the house. So that's been consistent. <laughs> well, I will say though, I mean, you had all these, these three limited series between seasons, I, I assume with Waco, Dirty John and Maniac. And then of course, I guess another thing that was clearly between seasons, I believe filmed in, in spring of 2019 is The Assistant, which I want to, you know, this will be our final chapter here of this conversation. And it's so great. I think that probably the pandemic didn't help, you know, in terms of theatrical release, but it is available now on Hulu and people can go and see it and they really should. You're playing this recent college graduate now working as an assistant to a high powered and in some ways abusive movie executive. This is Kitty Green's first narrative film. It's one day in the life of this character you're playing. And to me, it was almost like watching a silent movie because you don't have very many lines of dialogue. I w I'd love to see what the script looked like because you emote so much through posture and eye flickers and all the other, every other thing but dialogue except for the scene with the HR guy played by uh, Matthew McFadden, which is a, a very powerful scene. But just how did it come about and what for you was the main appeal of this character? You know, I think what, first of all, I was, I heard about, I've seen Kitty's, I've seen casting John Bonet, um the month it went on Netflix because I love documentaries and I love crime dramas. Um, <laughs> so, of course, I was going to be the first one seeing that on Netflix. So I've heard about her and I was instantly like a fan of hers. Um, and then when I saw that she was doing a, a feature with, you know, the first non-documentary film, I, I was like, oh, I definitely want to do this. But also adding on to what I was saying earlier, going back, I was looking for something to go back to my indie film, indie film roots in a way and go yeah, back to my yeah. roots where I started. And, um, you know, that just felt like the perfect film. And then on top of it, there was something really appealing to me having almost being in like a silent film, you know, and how hard that is, you know, it's equally as hard as having a ton of dialogue in like a courtroom drama that you have to like memorize like these stuff for lost. Like it, it, it's equally as, as hard in, in a way. Um, with an accent and I've done tons of dialogue with an accent and that's very mm -hmm. hard, but it's equally as hard because one hand you have to translate everything and not speak. But the other hand, you don't want to overact it, you know, because the fact is, is that Jane, the girl, she, this is just another day. She's just photocopying. She's not thinking about, she's done this a hundred times every day. She's not thinking about like, oh, is he coming? Oh, no, she's just thinking about photocopying, you know, whatever form she's going to photocopy or, you know, so it's very subtle things. But I think the thing that was the tension was everybody's always watching everyone and, oh, well, yeah, well, everyone's going to watch me. Like, am I going to photocopy f fast enough or this or like, you know, no one has each other's back and all that stuff. There's that tension so that was really appealing to me. But yeah, but I, and also just something was appealing too that, you know, how I prepared that movie especially was that 
I really wanted, like Kitty made it very clear, and I loved that she did that, was she really wanted this movie to be a quiet movie, like energetically and just the atmosphere of it. It's like a quiet, silent movie um, because the situation is so loud. So the contrast between that is really interesting. And I wanted to make sure that I was separating the audience with the people who she was in the room with. So you could really separate the two and isolate them. And so the audience is in the, with, on the journey with Jane and they really also feel alone and isolated and uncomfortable and actually quite a miserable <laughs> experience, you know? But I knew this wasn't going to be a popcorn film, but I also knew that that way it was important, you know? Oh, it's, a, it's really powerful. And I will say, I know that you guys from, I think the time at, premiered in Telluride where I was there with a lot of people who I love that festival. That's honestly the best festival I've ever, I mean, I love all the festivals, but I mean, so special. It's awesome. Yeah. It really it's is. like, it's just for movies. Also Turner classic movies reps there too. So it's totally. Fun. And you know what else is that Laura Linney's husband, I believe she met there. Who's he's the nicest guy. Too. Yeah. And, and she, so she comes every year, even when she doesn't have a, sometimes she does have a movie that's playing at the fest, but you should, yeah, come back. A lot of, actually quite a few people uh, go even when they don't have movies. I know. I was thinking about doing that. I was like, if I'm not shooting that we I like, if I'm just like not working and I, I'm definitely going to do that because it's really special. Yeah. Well, I will say, you know, the, one of the things that's nice there is that there's a lot of people from the business. You're, it's not, I know from talking to, you know, actors and people who have been there that you're not, they're the only people that are going to pay that much and schlep that far to go to a film festival are serious film people. So you're not getting, you can walk around and enjoy movies like everybody else. And, you know, everybody's talking about movies. And among the people who I spoke to a lot at that festival are people who at one time or another worked for Harvey Weinstein. Now, I know you guys have said this is not specifically Harvey Weinstein, but when we are talking, you know, it, there are so many things that for a lot of these people, I don't know if you've, if maybe they said this to you at, on the gondola or, or whatever at, at Telluride, but you know, the, the, from the looks of the office in Tribeca to some of the darker stuff that's come out, the literally like penile injection syringes, uh, to, Stay. <laughs> I'm not Stay. like it's like it's like oh my I'm not I mean I'm, I laugh when things are really terrible so yeah no it's crazy but staying at the they're like they're reliving their their lives because all right Harvey needs to, when he's coming to LA he stays at the peninsula which you guys talk about he's gonna fly into Van Nuys he's always a slob so the desk needs to be cleaned up um even the voice that we hear behind the door we never see this guy's face but it's this gravelly Either he's yelling or laughing or whatever, and it's the gravelly. So, uh, and I can tell you as somebody who, you know, as I, you know, my beat is sort of award season, I've been on both the receiving end of the screaming and the flattering notes like that email your character gets where it's like, um, well, I'm sure I'm you doing have, the, I'm, I'm already thinking, I can't imagine even what you emails you've got. <laughs> yeah, no, I mean, it's, it's, I, luckily he wasn't interested in sexually harassing me, thank God. But, um, but I was getting some weird stuff from this guy and, and it just was very eerie. I think you guys nailed it. I get it. If you can't say, or if you don't, maybe there are elements that aren't specifically Harvey, but just the idea that 
you're as someone who's kind of risen to prominence in a in the era when this has all gone down, the whole fall of him, the Me Too movement. You probably even know and have worked with people who have, and and God forbid, I hope not, but may have experienced it yourself. I, I guess on that meta level, what's it like to be telling that kind of a story about the business that we're all actually in? Well, I, I first of all, I want to start that I'm, I've, I've been very fortunate that uh, I've never, first of all, I've worked with really kind, wonderful people. Again, I told you, Laura and Jason are great yeah. leaders. And they don't abuse their power. But, you know, and I've never had any sort of uh, sexual harassment. I've definitely know people who have and who have experienced it. But I've been very lucky that I haven't. But I will say, you know, the thing that I, I love about the assistant is that it's not from the point of view of the person who's getting sexually abused or who is the abuser or who's this. Like, it's the person outside. It is the person who is saying yes to all of the abuser's requests or what, whatever, the higher up. Because it's so much bigger than just like, that man is an abuser. He needs to be like done and finished with. It's like, yes, absolutely. That's stating the obvious. But the bigger question is, and the bigger subject is, is who are the yes people? Who are, and I'm not saying it's Jane's fault. It's really the fault of the people, the executives at the company that work for him that are too afraid to, you know, make, push his comfort zone. Like, hey, you can't do this. Who he actually listens to. But they're too afraid to even say. So they're yes, yes people in a way. Okay, we're enabling this behavior because we're afraid of him. So it's the, it's, it, yes, it is the abuser, but it's also the people who are enabling this kind of behavior. And they're also shaping the environment. You know, it, it's, it's not just when people are like, oh yeah, I work, you know, I just said it. I worked with amazing people. I didn't say I work with an amazing person. Right. You right, know, right. Right. So I, it's that 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 to me is what I love about this movie. No, it's really really well done, and I think even that scene in the elevator. Mute this, folks, for thirty seconds if you haven't seen the movie. But basically, where the female exec is like, "Don't worry, honey. You know they're getting more out of it than he ever will, or whatever." Like clearly, those people existed, and it's tough because yeah, and it's also powerful you know, that a female executive is saying that too. It's such a the whole thing is really twisted because even in reality with with Harvey specifically he on some level really did respect women like all his top PR people and awards people and certain other execs he had a present product they were they were women so he and yet obviously there's this flip side of it where who knows psychologically what made it happen but um and and clearly a lot of people had to know some degree of what was going on maybe they didn't know the whole picture but it does make all of us, I think, think well, back more to that. They that. were in denial of the whole picture and they weren't really yeah. addressing it or they had a feeling, but they weren't looking into it. They weren't listening to their gut. Absolutely. All right. So with our last minute, I hope I can just give you like your gut response to a few different quick things. Um, first of all, what do you think happens to Jane after the credits roll? I think she goes back to work right away. 
and stays there and becomes the producer that she wants to be? Or what happens? I think she, yeah, I think so. But maybe she goes back to work and probably she works somewhere else after a year or two. That's just like the truth of the project. Like I was never going to be like, oh yeah, she's definitely like being like peace. No, because who knows? They could be calling five other companies and be like, don't hire this girl. This girl's crazy. So, and I think that did happen. Oh yeah. And, and I think, you know, it was interesting. Like, not that I got, people were like, why didn't she just quit? I'm like, how many times did you experience an abusive and you did not say anything because you're in such shock? Like before you judge, just reflect back of different situations that that's, that you've been in. And it's always a what if question, but sometimes it's not reality, you know? Yeah. Number two of these four rapid fires. I believe that when this freaking pandemic ends, we will next see you in Shonda Rhimes' first Netflix show. I think it's a limited series called Inventing Anna. And anyone who's read that uh, article, was it New York Magazine or which magazine yeah, was it about? Yeah, it was a, a cut article, which is New York. Yeah. New York. yeah. So just this, cra- I'm not even going to try to synopsize, just one of the craziest stories. Um, you did, I read, I think in our own recent cover story about you, uh, visited Anna Delvey, who you're playing, and in jail where she is at the moment. Is that, that's got to be one of the more surreal things as an actress that you've had to deal with? Yeah, it got super meta at one point because she asked me how, she's, <laughs> I don't want to do the act, but she's like, <laughs> she's like, how are you playing me? <laughs> and I, I I don't want to do it too much because you guys have to see, I mean, and her accent and I, you know, I was, you know, telling her how I'm, you know, I want people to see her as a person rather than a character because I feel like, you know, the public has, you know, she hasn't really had any inter- interviews in a way. And I want people to understand her story. That's my job as an actor for people to understand why that person did that. So, and then she said, and I said, and your accent's really hard. And she's like, how do you sounds like me? <laughs> and, and then I, 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 she, I said, oh, I don't know. She's like, nah, do it. And, and, and I mean, she taught, and it's this weird German Russian, but has American tones to it. Like the music of how she speaks sounds like an American almost because she's been here for a while. And, uh, it, and then we were just talking like each other and it got really meta that's great. I can't wait to see that. It's um, three or four is, have you spoken with Madonna? No. Never? Mm-mm. Okay. Uh, and finally. Um, I'm like, where are you hearing that, Scott? <laughs> <laughs> are you Are you just on the internet? Uh, no. I'm a very big fan of hers, though. So, uh, no. But, yes, that's... I, yes, I, I don't really know how to answer that question, but no, I haven't, I haven't spoke to her or met her. So. We're not ruling out written correspondence. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Like, Is I get she it. with you right now? <laughs> <laughs> okay. Number four. And finally, I mean, it's amazing. You're 20. I'm 26. Wow. Six. I had to think about that for a second. That's how, that's my mindset in 2020 that I'm just like. What day is it? How old am I? Am I a boy? Well, I only, am I a boy? What am I? <laughs> I only I only bring it up. I know it's not it's not always polite to talk about age, but I bring it up it's because It's okay because this is the thing. It's a fact. I am 26. It's 
Whatever. That, by the way, that's you're you're so young, and I thank I just you. I'm taking that I, so you can I, say I, that I'm 26. That's thank you. <laughs> I, I mention it only because it's unbelievable. As people who have listened to this point in the conversation, you know, there's a lot that's been accomplished already. We didn't even talk about the fact that I guess we mentioned it briefly at the beginning. You know, two Emmys by 26 is pretty rare and incredible. Two Emmys in any ages, uh, and just all of the all the work. So I guess my final question is, what is most high on the bucket list moving forward. So what haven't you been able to do yet that you most would like to do? Is it one of those things that people, their lack of imagination prevented you from doing when you were first auditioning, like a rom-com or something like you were talking about earlier, or, or is it, you know, just continue on the same track or, or something in between? Definitely a rom-com, a good, like I'm talking about like a moonstruck type of thing, um, which I love that movie and Harry Met Sally and all those amazing rom-coms. So that for sure. But, you know, I like doing things where I'm even surprising myself. So I don't know quite what it is yet, but when I see it and in front of me, I'll know. And it's kind of one of those things like, I can't do this. This is impossible. I can't do this. Okay, I'm going to do it. (laughs) That's how I always, every character that like Ruth, Anna, Eve, I mean, hopefully it's, I'm going to do a good job and people are going to like it. But, you know, anything where I'm like, this is impossible. No, I can't. I'm not doing I'm going to do this. Let me just call them my agents and be like, yep. (laughs) Well, that is exciting for all of us. And uh, so nice to meet you. And I look forward to our AFI thing. And thank you for doing this. uh, When this is all over. Please, God, I can't wait to get back there. I mean, this year was put off, canceled or whatever, but. It's going to be a fun thing in 2021. You got to make it happen. Move the schedule around. You got to be there. I know. I will. I will. Thank you so much, Scott. This yeah, is, I'm my pleasure. Thank you. Thanks very much for tuning in to Awards Chatter. We really appreciate you taking the time to do that and would really appreciate you taking a minute more to subscribe to our podcast on iTunes or your podcast app and to leave us a rating as well. If you have any questions, comments, or concerns, you can reach me via Twitter at twitter.com slash Scott Feinberg. And you can follow all of my coverage between episodes at thr.com slash the race. Until next time, thanks for joining us.